the torque is better, the speed is better. They're really uh, the people that are going from one Ford F one fifty to another that's battery based have been very impressed. The only thing that we're hearing as a negative is that people are talking about not hearing the sound of the engine, and they like the sound of the engine. So they need to put a they need to put an amplifier in there and make the engine sound. Broom, broom, broom. Just put a sound in there. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. I'll close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning again. Welcome to another exciting, I hope, semi-exciting, moderately not mediocre, uh, second hour of the Personal Wealth Coach, where we will continue our conversation about all things economic. This is Jake McClure. The other bald person on the air with me is... Jeff McClure. Uh, together... Uh, there is some form of relativity that occurs between us, just in case you were wondering there. Um, we've got a couple of other questions out there. Alan, who, who said that he first heard about uh, exports of liquid natural gas to Europe on our program a few years back. He said he was listening to uh, the Trump's last energy secretary uh, being interviewed and saying that, yeah, it actually happened. It worked out. It, it's in use. Well, the, it is. And this is something that either political side of the spectrum could take credit for. It happened under the Trump administration, but it was planned under the Obama administration. So both sides had to look at this and say, this is a good idea. What is it? Well, natural gas is a lot less expensive than coal for, or for, than heating oil to heat or power uh, your production. For energy purposes and for heating purposes, nat natural gas is just lots less expensive. Uh, heating oil takes a lot more refining. It's heavier. It's harder to move around. So what is liquid natural gas and how are we exporting it? Liquid natural gas is compressed natural gas into its liquid state. And then we have big pipes that take it to shipping ports. And we had some laws on the books that both the Democrats and the Republicans have taken off the books that come from the era of uh, limited supply. Um, during the Obama administration and then into the Trump administration, laws were changed that had limited our ability to export liquid natural gas. Why would we do that? Why would we limit our ability to export liquid natural gas? Because we didn't have enough when those laws were made. This was a direct response to an Arab embargo of oil and shortages of oil and this thought that we were not energy independent. We were going to try to become energy independent by limiting our exports. So we didn't ship to somebody else rather than keeping it in our own country. Well, now that we have this massive excess of natural gas, it didn't make any sense anymore. And so Congress changed the law. And this is one of those things where you don't hear about this very often, but it was bipartisan. This is something that both the Democrats and the Republicans agreed with. So these liquid natural gas export facilities were developed, and they were they're big facilities. They're big pipes that go out and pump liquid natural gas into big shipping. Uh, they're they're not like the little shipping containers. These are they're they're not uh, the same sort of structure as an oil um, 
tanker. And then it takes it across either the Atlantic or the Pacific. It's going across the Atlantic if it's in Houston. There are several pipes that head over to California that would take it across the Pacific. And uh, so the last part of this question here is that, is there any validity to Republican congressional members saying that the Biden administration energy policies will lead us once again to become dependent on Middle East oil? Quick answer to that. What the president does, no matter the president, that is helpful or hindering to the oil companies in the United States is fairly limited. They issue licenses for offshore drilling, primarily in the Gulf of Mexico and offshore uh, in Florida area, and licensing for federal land and whether or not you can run a pipeline through it or you can drill on the federal land for oil. That, that, okay, so that sounds very dry and bureaucratic. Something that's really important to understand here is that Donald Trump issued a whole bunch of licensing for, or the ability to buy at auction, the licenses to drill offshore. And people that showed up at the auction didn't bid very much on it because it's expensive, very expensive. Just, just ask the Deepwater Horizon to, to drill way down through the water and then down through the rock when you can set up a fracking facility on land for a lot less. So we've not been utilizing those lease contracts very much in the economy for the past decade or so. When we hear about a Biden policy on oil and gas leading us to be dependent on Middle East oil, take it with a grain of salt, just like the other way around where the Democrats would say somehow we're going to completely destroy all of the coral reefs because Trump's issued licenses. Um, Biden's not issuing as many licenses. The reality is we're not using offshore drilling as much as we used to. We're not, there's not a lot of rigs that are being made to do that right now because it's not as profitable as the other areas. It's a lot easier, a lot less money to set up fracking than it is to do those other things. When, when I say take it with a grain of salt, it is the job of the Republicans to, to despise the Democrats, and it is the job of the Democrats to despise the Republicans. At some point in my life, I thought, well, somehow we're all American, and we're going to work together on this. Nope, they don't get elected if they work together right now. So you're going to hear biased opinions about the other side, period. Just know that. If the Congress folks on the Republican side are saying that Biden is about to do fill in the blank, just know that they're not going to be saying it with an equal balance weighting of what the good pros and cons might be in there. It's going to be all cons. And the same is true when the Democrats are talking about the Republicans. That's the clearest answer there. There's not a danger at this point of us being dependent on the Middle East for oil and gas again. I was just going to agree with you on that. The point is that we have more oil than, the, than Saudi Arabia does. We have more gas than Saudi Arabia does, and we have the ability to get to it. So making us dependent upon the Middle East when they have to ship it all the way from there to here doesn't make any sense at all. But it uh, makes a good headline. Really the makes other a good thing headline. Is, the other thing is about depending more and more on uh, natural, I want to say renewable resources. Mm -hmm. They're becoming less expensive than drilling and extracting oil and natural gas, and they continue to do so. It's very much like what's happened with coal and natural gas. Coal replaced natural gas, not because coal was bad, although it's dirtier than natural gas, 
but because natural gas was cheaper. That's how the economy works. Yeah, you don't have cave-ins with miners being killed when you're mining for natural gas. We're, the, the market is driving the energy situation very thoroughly. The, the fact that there's subsidies. There were subsidies in the United States government for a lot of things. Subsidies for the railroads as they proceeded to the West. There's subsidies for oil and gas in the United States government right now. There's depletion allowances. There's extra tax breaks for people who drill for oil and gas in the United States. It's a simple, it's a simple fact. Yes, there's some subsidies for wind and electric power. There's some good reasons for that, too. The, the fact that the wind and, and, and solar panels produce less pollution, produces less health effects, less, less damage to buildings. There's a whole series of things that it produces that save the government money. As long as the subsidies are aimed in places that actually save the government money over time or make more tax money for the government, they're a good thing. You know, when the subsidies are when money is aimed at things that don't do anything to enhance the tax base or make less life less expensive for the government, that's when we're wasting money. Yeah, and this is this is a key cool in, in, issue here. Subsidies are often needed to help a, a, a budding industry take off. If it's a, it's a promising thing, but they have a lot of front-end cost to get started, whether that's oil and gas or some type of renewable. They have a big front-end cost, and the profits stretch over a long period of time. It's the same in batteries. It's the same in solar. Subsidies in solar were so high that it prevented solar manufacturers, the, the panel manufacturers, photovoltaic production facilities from improving because they didn't need to. The subsidies were making it profitable to use this old technology and you couldn't get a big chunk of money to upgrade your facility. So you just kept selling the old technology solar panels. Well, it took the Trump administration ratcheting back on those same subsidies for solar to take off and become more efficient and actually become profitable rather than just profitable because the government was giving them money. So some degree of subsidy is important to get something started, but if it's too much, it keeps it from developing. That's the balance that we have between Republicans and Democrats. And, you know, me saying they despise each other, I kind of like that because the pendulum shift back and forth allows us to make some kind of forward progress. I'm not, I think there's a lot more efficient ways of getting the forward progress, but it seems to work. Uh, so, and that kind of leads us to this next thing. Subsidies from the government for local businesses, for that nation's business, this nation's business, can be effective, but it can also dampen trade. And at the same time, we have this other question from Roger, and you have a more complete answer to this. Uh, but the, the question is on lumber. Is there still a tariff on imported lumber? Yeah, what are the chances of revoking it? And there's tariffs on lumber from Russia because of Ukraine. There's tariffs on lumber from Canada because that was one of the first tariffs that were instituted by the Trump administration. But can you handle, Canada is a great example. Can you handle that subject? Well, it's a little complicated. The, the Trump administration put 24% tariffs on imported lumber from Canada. And later in December 30, December 21st of last year, I think it was lowered it to 9% just before they left office. Now the Commerce Department under President Biden has looked at the has looked at the situation there and is going to raise the average up to 18.9%, I think it is. Now why? 
because they've looked at the government subsidies that are being given to lumber companies in Canada that are not being given to government, that we don't give to companies in the United States. And it basically ranges from 9% in some companies to 33% in others. Now, the individual companies in Canada are going to be hit with tariffs probably about November because they have to publish it and they have to get their comments and everything has to happen. But the bottom line to it is in this particular case, and apparently Trump had it pretty close to right, there's enough government subsidies to Canadian lumber companies. Now, these are the sawmills that they can actually produce the lumber less expensively than U.S. lumber mills and then ship it to the United States and sell it at the same prices as the U.S. lumber mills. It shouldn't have any effect on the price of lumber in the United States, by the way. That's the weird part about it. It simply cuts into the profits on their end. The market is driving the price of lumber in the United States. It has nothing to do with tariffs in this case. It, it will, again, when we get a bigger supply. But well, it is nowhere near as much of a, of a market impact as the fact that we just don't have enough to go around right now. We may not get a bigger supply for a while because during the period of time when lumber, during the, during the pandemic, when lumber demand, before the pandemic, when lumber demand was low, Canadian companies, taking advantage of the fact that they had record profits, went in and bought up the majority of U.S. lumber mills in the United States. They're right. not building new ones. They're not building new ones in the United States. And this, this has led to an oversupply of logs in the, in the south of the United States. There's a, people are paying other companies to take logs away from them because the waiting line to get to the sawmill is months long. And they've got to store these logs and they don't, they're, they're leaving them on trucks and now they can't use their trucks for other things. So there's this glut of logs and an undersupply of lumber. And that's because the, the lumber mills are just going as fast as they can. They've got risk issues. It's a dangerous thing to be working at a lumber mill. And they're going as fast as they possibly can without destroying all their equipment. And in some case, they're destroying their equipment because they're, at, they're working overtime on top of overtime. So what's the answer? Well, if we build a bunch of sawmills right now, those are expensive and they'll probably be finished off in a year or so. At that point, we could start to see the prices of lumber drop or the demand might come back for that lumber at the lower price to keep the housing because there's a lot of demand for housing. We didn't build as much as we used to during the pandemic, and we stopped building as much as the demand was after the Great Recession because we had too many houses. So now we don't have enough houses to go around. We don't have enough lumber to build the houses that we need. It, it, it goes back to supply chain issues. When you get slack in the chain and then it snaps tight all again, it causes a lot of inefficiency. And we talked about this during the big shutdowns where we were saying the worst thing you can do to the economy is stop, start, stop, start, because the chain gets snapped and then loose and then snapped and then loosed. And we could, we used trucking and unemployment and layoffs in the trunking, trucking industry where during the pandemic, we would go one month to the next where there, you couldn't find enough trucks. And you couldn't hire people fast enough, followed by a month where truckers were getting laid off hand over fist, followed by another month of you got to hire as many truckers as you can. That's supply chain loosening and tightening. By the way, lumber is just a short of supply and just as high a price in Canada as in the United States. So, again, the, the tariff is a really irrelevant thing at this point. And it is based, at least this time, it's based on the survey 
to determine how much government subsidy individual companies get and what they're doing with it. I appreciate that. I actually think it's probably, if you want to look it up, it's at the Commerce Department. The public needs a lot of details, but it's pretty complex. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Man, we got lots and lots and lots of news this year, uh, this, this week. One of the big things that's coming up is uh, there's a lot of tax changes in the works, a lot of tax changes in the works. None of them are meant to simplify the code. There's lots of talk on capital gains, on whether there's a step up in basis at death or not. There's lots of taxes or talk on tax, new taxes on other types of capital gains. There's changes to the child tax credit and People are going to start actually receiving checks month by month for half of their tax credits starting in July. So it'll be split out over a period of time. This is a, just a fascinating series of changes that are taking place that are unprecedented. We don't know, because we've never done it before, what the effects of all this stuff is. Uh, I can tell you that the capital gains rate is quite low right now. But I think it's sitting right at the point kind of where it needs to be, where I would say corporate is a little, the corporate rate's a little low. And why am I saying that? Directly due to how much revenue it brings to the government. Every time we've tweaked the capital gains rate in the last 20 years to be higher than it is right now, we've lost government. Uh, uh, we've lost government revenue. They've lost money by raising taxes. We lowered corporate tax rates and we lowered revenue. There's somewhere sweet, there's a sweet spot between how high it was and how low it is where the revenue will be the best for the government. That is the spot that a good government tries to hit because it's the most revenue means that you're not impeding the company by your level of tax. They're able to maintain profitability and be more profitable at that level of tax. And if it's too low, then the corporation might be extremely profitable, but the government d doesn't get paid much money. So that sweet spot is the balance between business and government because government's the one that builds the roads that the corporations use to ship their stuff from one place to another, and they have to build the roads so this is, this is the balance. Capital gains is probably right at the right spot. The personal income tax rate is pretty close to right. Corporate tax rate, I think, is a little bit low. And, and I can look at charts on this. One of the things that makes this a really hard thing to predict, though, is that the sweet spot moves with the economy. And the better the economy, the higher you can charge in taxes. And the worse the economy, the lower you should. Because if you raise taxes when the economy is bad, you can keep it from getting good again. And if you lower, lower taxes when the economy's good, then the next time the economy's bad, you don't have the reserves at the governmental level to help the economy through it. And that's anybody that's listened to us for a while will hear that when we talk about like when we lowered taxes under George W. Bush. We had, a, we had a surplus under Bill Clinton, so we lowered taxes, and it was a reasonable thing to do. We'll lower taxes, we'll be able to be paying back on our debt, keep it balanced. And the tax lowering, if the budget had stayed to what it was at the point that they were lowering taxes, it probably would have been a good deal. But then we had two wars 
And every year we increased our budget on top of the wars. Uh, and that was under both Republicans and Democrats. It's really easy to blame the other party, but both sides have been increasing the budget. Both sides have continued wars. It's not that there's any, uh, I'm not bringing ethics or morality or whether or not we should or should not have been in a war. I'm just looking at the money. So when we're looking at those tax changes and following along to today, there are a lot of changes in the works right now. So many different changes that is completely impossible to be in any way accurate to predict the outcome. They just interact so differently with each other. So even if revenue falls or rises, we're going to have to spend a lot of hours trying to figure out where it rose and where it fell. And that, that data is only available like two years after the fact because it comes from the IRS. So just, there's a lot of people that are scared about this. It's the same thing that you do in any time a tax is changing, is that you go back to the whiteboard and you start saying, all right, what's the appropriate way of approaching this? There's a consensus on the tax proposals, though, and that is basically, and this was in the campaign of the Biden administration, the taxes for people who make less than $400,000 a year probably won't change very much. I think Congress has agreed on that. The White House has agreed on that. And if you hit a million dollars a year income, yeah, you're going to see some hits, particularly if it's capital gains and a lot of other places. That's the one thing I think that is consistent across all the tax proposals is that they're going to hit the upper income people a lot more and lower income people a lot less. And uh, if you consider less than $400,000 middle income people, very little, very little change probably will occur in the, in the middle income range. Yeah, coming out of World War II, not long after World War II, to pay back the debts, the war bonds, and all of the other stuff that happened. And we, World War II pulled us out of the Depression, so there was a lot of stuff to pay back. We had a 90% tax bracket on the top income earners, and that lasted for years. So we've been here before. Really- What's that? Not that anybody really paid 90%. No, because, and when we're looking at this sort of setup, when people are talking about estate tax changes or capital gains changes or what, I mean, there's, there's already stuff that we work with clients that are selling a business. If a client is saying, I'm selling a business, it'll take place next year. I already have a buyer lined up. Well, we immediately want them talking with an attorney and structuring the purchase into an escrow account that releases money over a multi-year period so that they don't receive all of the income from 40 years of building a business in one year. Because that'll put them in the top income bracket easily, where if they have it set to pay out over a five-year period, it's sitting in a third-party escrow account. Everybody knows the money is there. You meet your contractual obligations on, uh, you have the business for this period of time. Uh, there were no lies in the contract. The next bit of escrow comes out that following year. That's, that's a pretty standard approach if you're talking about a lot of money on a business sale anyway. It will just be more appropriate for more people. And that's, it's going to cost more to do a sale. It's going to put some more friction on it. But this, these are things that, that have existed in the past. Uh, what, what we, you know, when people come and talk to me about this, there's always this kind of impression of impending doom. 
and I have to remind them that this is a first world problem, that the amount of taxes that they would pay on this much money means that they made this much money. Uh, and that's an important thing to congratulate themselves and not to get so worked up on the negative tax implications that they lose sight of their accomplishment and they lose sight of their ability to plan. You do need to pay taxes, but you can structure it in a way that doesn't make you destitute. So that's, that's kind of my wrap up on, there's a lot of stuff going on in the tax world right now and nobody really knows what the final thing is going to look like heard a lot of people being told by their accountants that they need to go back and and make a new estate plan. And what I've told them is that, well, if you have an estate plan, you probably spent a lot of money on it. And if you're making a new one, you should probably know what the law is before you spend the money on the new estate plan. We need to figure out what the, what the law is actually going to be before we make changes. So don't panic, number one. If you're Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Keep your towel present and don't panic. Um, you will, you'll make it through this because you're in good shape if you're being hit by these taxes. Just making sure you stay in the best shape you can be is important. Or by the Volgan Destructor Fleet. Or by the Volgan Destructor Fleet. Don't let them quote poetry at you, please. Above all. Above yes, all. That's correct. I think it's like someone reading the IRS code to you. Is, that's the equivalent. And if you don't know what we're talking about, it's all right. You have our sympathy. That's right. Yeah. If you haven't read the complete Hitchhiker's Guide or the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I you have our sympathy, but uh, you're probably more sane for the non-reading. I don't know. I think it makes them understanding the tax code far from it, it ever does. going to. If you understand the Hitchhiker's Guide, you can understand the tax code. You would understand the infinite improbability drive too. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we probably ought to move on to something else. Let's do it. Talked about the labor shortage. We talked about, hey, the leading in economic indicators, they don't make the headlines anymore because we're so busy wrapped up in pandemic stuff, but still a good idea to keep an eye on them. The conference board has something called the Index of Leading Economic Indicators, and they are doing a wonderful job of forecasting business cycle recessions. Now, they did not forecast the pandemic which is not something they're designed to do. But they did for they have forecast every business cycle recession that we've had for the last 50 years or so, 60 years, with amazing accuracy. Now, they have forecast a few that we don't have, too, but that's all right. As long as they're not forecasting one, we generally don't have one. And the it was the it went up 1.6% this month, or last month, rather, in April, and it went up 1.4% in March. That's an indication that the leading economic indicators are telling us that the next year we'll probably be without a recession. Now, when you look at the market, and I have had some people express to me some concern when the market dipped a little bit in the middle of this week, the market is going to bob up and down. You're going to have corrections that have nothing to do with the economy. The, the froth in the market is real. However, the bottom line, the function of the market, the bottom line price, if you're based on price to earnings ratios and things of that nature, which we work with, it's really fairly simple. The process of making more money, when companies make more things more profitably, their price of their stock generally goes up over time. That's what long-term investing is about. Leading economic indicators, I love their forecast. 
It suggests the board now forecasts real GDP growth at an annualized rate of 6 to 9% in the second quarter and 6.4% for 2021. Now, that's, that is an amazingly important thing to, to pay attention to. China's GDP this year is expected to be around 6%. U.S. GDP growth this year is around 6.4%. We're larger than they are. We're at, at very likely going to outgrow China this year. Now, that's a bit of positive news, which means we'll make the papers. It's not very popular to talk about. Not nice to say positive things about the United States economy when somebody else's president is in office, whoever, whatever side you're on. But it's a fact. We're doing very, very well. We're coming out of this recession and this uh, pandemic very, very well. The, one of the things that the board also said, U.S. employment and production have not recovered to the pre-pandemic levels yet. That's true. But the economy's upward trend will continue and growth may even accelerate in the near term. And I think it'll be that way. I think we're going to see a blowout GDP this quarter. And I think we're going to see a great GDP for the rest of the year, probably in the 4 or 5% range in the following year. And I think we're basically in a sweet spot where things are growing and going to continue to grow. But that doesn't mean the market isn't going to act like, it, like it's scared of something because that's what it's supposed to do. Right. Um, and, I, and I think the... You know, this what you alluded to right there is that it's not popular if the opposite party is in office to talk about anything good about the economy. I would invite people to go back on our website and listen to our recordings of the radio program during the Obama, Obama administration and then under the Trump administration and now under the Biden administration. And hear how consistent we are on this, that we're not giving credit to Obama for the booming economy. We're giving credit to the economy for the booming economy. And under Trump, we didn't give credit to Trump for the booming economy. It was to the economy. We also didn't blame Trump for the pandemic, nor did we blame George W. Bush for the Great Recession. It is so common to give credit and blame over things that have zero to do with it to the sitting president. So what we're saying now is that this economic expansion doesn't have to do with some policy shifts that have been happened under a Democrat or a Republican. It has to do with a much larger piece of the puzzle, much larger piece of the puzzle. And that larger piece of the puzzle is... Right now, it's the pandemic. We had we have uh, we had a near worldwide shutdown for about a week, followed by a partial shutdown that lasted nearly a year. We're still not we're still not back to whole on the partial side. There's a lot of our economy that's still shut down, and that's what we've been talking about. So whether it's Biden or Trump that's in charge while this is going on. First thing to say is that there's plenty of stuff to complain about and there's plenty of stuff to compliment. And that would be true under either of them. And if you're trying to look at this in a non-political, it's almost a religious fight at this point between the political parties. If you're looking at it purely based on what is the economy doing, the trade war took place at a time when our economy was booming, so we didn't have a whole lot of negative impact from it. We still have a lot of tariffs, a lot of tariffs from the trade war. This trade war is continuing. It didn't stop 
I realized that there aren't headlines that talk about the trade war anymore. The pandemic is bigger. It stopped during the Trump administration. We didn't stop the war. The, the war is ongoing, and we've got tariffs from on Canada and Mexico and South Korea and China and Japan and everybody else in the world. And there are a lot of people that thought, as soon as the Democrats come in, they're going to get rid of all the gains that we made in the trade war. They're going to take the tariffs. That didn't happen. Uh, and this is something that we said at the time, that this is a populist move. A tariff is a populist move. And the Democrats and the Republicans share a populist agenda right now. It's the only thing that they kind of agree on. Well, there's some other stuff, too. Some marijuana stuff that they're starting to agree on. Um, what else do you think they agree on? I think they agree on the general. Well, most, most there's some Republicans who are objecting to it, but I think most people agree that the taxes on very high-income people are abnormally low. Yeah, we're, we kind of agree on... Even the high-income people agree that their taxes are too low. Right. So we'll agree that income on high-end people's a little low. Income by the way, taxes. In, income taxes, I'm sorry. And by the way, the majority of the upper-income earners at this point are Democrats. That used to be Republicans. So there's a weird shift there. They're kind of the ones that are voting for higher taxes on themselves. Which is a fast. This happened after World War II as well. The people that had the highest income were predominantly in the party that was voting for higher taxes on the highest income. Now that will shift over time, as if history is any guide. The top income earners, after they go into a higher bracket, will start complaining about it and start switching to the other party. This this is what's happened throughout history. So just hold that in mind. There's a lot of shifting occurring, a lot of behavioral changes. A lot of reasons why people are changing why they vote one way or another. It's taking place inside the parties and outside the parties. So on the political side, we're seeing the same kind of shifting that we're seeing in the economic side. People that were business owners may be out of business and going back to work for somebody else. People who were working for somebody else might be business owners now. There's a massive change. And in some ways, this is maybe the most fodder for dissertations and thesis uh, for academics and economics since way before the Great Recession. The Great Recession provided a lot, but it was all on a financial collapse. It didn't have anything to do with the economy as a whole, just how it related to a financial collapse. This stuff is so fascinating. We're going to be studying this. This is, this is textbook stuff for the next hundred plus years. And we're living through it. You may get interviewed for one of those textbooks, just as a side note, those of you out there. You never know when somebody's asking you questions, whether that's for posterity's sake. Because this is the sort of stuff that you'll be talking to people for decades about. Where were you in the pandemic? It's already begun. There's something that uh, changed the subject. You want something to worry about long term, not that I'll be around to oh, see it happen. Oh, or I you love probably. things to worry about. Let, what, what can we worry about now? The um, total fertility rate is down to 1.64 in the United States. What that, that's a, a number that's used to measure how many kids in a lifetime a woman has. That might sound sexist to you, but at this point, it is the only way that we procreate. So, Just before the Great Recession in 2007, it was 2.12, which means the population of the United States was still growing from native births. 
We now have a sheer shrinking population. If we don't have immigration, we'll wind up like Japan, getting much older as a population and much less productive. Or like China will be. Yeah, exactly. Or we're getting to this point. If you'd like to ask us a question, uh, we've got emails that we are checking. Jeff at tpwc.com or Jake at tpwc.com. That's Tango, Papa, Whiskey, Charlie, or The Personal Wealth Coach. I just like saying Tango, Papa, Whiskey, Charlie. Sounds good to me, except whiskey in the middle of it. Yeah, whiskey's good. Um, so we'll be back on the other side of these commercials with more of The Personal Wealth Coach. And we're back with more of The Personal Wealth Coach with Jake and... Jeff. McLure. We know who we are. We think, sort of. I think so, yeah. We've talked a lot about uh, transitions to newer types of, of power generation um, at the you know, natural gas versus solar and wind and so on. And this is an area that I think is really interested. Um, are you, have you heard anything about the Ford F-150 Lightning? No, I haven't. This is not a sponsor, um, when I look at the cyber truck from Tesla, I'm also quite impressed with it. Ford is doubling down into the electric market and they're building their Ford F-150. It looks the same, but the long battery in there and the, the torque is better. The speed is better. They're really, uh, the people that are going from one Ford F-150 to another that's battery based have been very impressed. The only thing that we're hearing as a negative is that. People are talking about not hearing the sound of the engine, and they like the sound of the engine. So they need to put a they need to put an amplifier in there and make the engine sound. Broom, broom, broom. Just put a sound in there. Well, this is this is some of the other stuff that's coming out of it that I think is awesome, and, and that's a technical term. As a side note, awesome. There's something that Ford is introducing. Tesla has a a power wall, which is a battery that fits on your wall in your garage or something that you can charge on the grid, but it, or you can charge it with solar, uh, your own panels or whatever. And then in the event that you lose power, you go to the battery, your power wall. And it can charge your house for however long period based on size of your battery and all that good stuff. Well, Ford is introducing some, something called the Ford Intelligent Backup Power. It isn't a battery that fits on your wall you plug your house into your truck. And when you lose, lose power in your house, they're talking about three days of power from your truck to run your house. That is awesome to me. This, these are things that are going to be part of our everyday life in the future, not just in Ford, but everywhere. Anytime one offers it, it's going to be offered by others. But the fact is that they expect to sell 100,000 Ford F-150 Lightnings this year. Not because they think they can only sell 100,000 of them, but because that's all they think they can make. So the demand is there as long as it's cheaper. And when you bring extra versatility, the ability to power your freaking house off of your pickup truck, that is amazing. That is magic. Now, if your only complaint about that is you can't hear the engine growl, Try leaving your truck in your garage and powering your house off of the engine growl. <laughs> when technology improves and becomes cheaper, 
the economy is going to be moving with it. I, I have always had internal combustion engines and I like them. Um, but when it becomes so. cheaper to move on, it's time to move on. When it becomes when more efficient, cheaper, and better, then you do it. Let's fully disclose here. When you mow your grass, how do you mow your grass? I use an electric with a battery-powered mower. And it yep. has, over the lifetime of that mower, has saved me lots of money. And that includes the fact that the, the batteries are so expensive. Because the batteries, my lithium-ion batteries, I've got a... A, a nice charging facility for them in my house and I stick them in there. It's a, more expensive on the front end, but a lot less expensive and a lot less problematic. I used to mow a lot um, and I used to uh, have to go and fill up my portable gas tank at the pump, stick it in my car and drive home with it. And I've had it spill and had the smell in my car for months afterwards I've been through the things. Anybody that's been in that area that has done mowing knows that that's there. Now, it's, it's not ready to replace internal combustion mowers yet. Uh, riding lawnmowers don't, I mean, here's an excellent business opportunity for somebody. You're setting up a lithium-ion lawnmower that is a riding mower. Right now, they're lead-based batteries for riding lawnmowers. That means that there's not innovation taking place there, but the push mowers are working. Uh, and this, this is not me advocating to switch to batteries. I don't want you to switch to batteries if you don't want to. It's me talking about the world is changing in front of us. And every time a new technology comes to replace an old technology, especially one that has defined identity, expect there to be resistance to it. And there's a lot of identity that's been defined over the diesel engines or the sound that your motor makes, just ask anybody who's ever ridden a Harley Davidson. There is something about the sound that is not duplicated in an electric motorcycle. But at some point, unless it's just for niche purposes where you want to drive you know, the Harley and you realize it's going to be more expensive and, and loud, then that's what you're going to do that is still going to be there. We're not getting rid of internal combustion. In fact, antique cars are going to be a thing forever as long as we can maintain them. Just don't expect that an extremely complicated engine in an internal combustion machine that has many thousands of parts that go into it, each of which could break, to be more efficient than an electric motor and a battery with some computers attached to it. The, the one is far more efficient than the other. And at, at some point, and it's already beginning, the demand is picking up for electric. We've passed the point where electric vehicles are more efficient than internal combustion. That's not across the board. There are still some electric vehicles that I would say stay away from, do your research. But this is just important. The Ford F-150 Lightning has a 300 mile range. That's a negative. If you're used to driving 300 miles and filling your tank and then driving more, charging your battery takes a couple of hours. And if you don't have a fast charger, it may take 12 hours to charge your battery. So there's negatives. There's reasons why people would not be buying them. But if all you're using your truck for 
is driving around in your local community, going to the store to pick up lumber, going to uh, the farm, whatever, electric becomes a better option when you're looking at it just for money. Interesting things. We're, you know, 2017, there were no headlines on this. We talked about it on the program that that was the year that China passed us as far as their average age. They're older than we are now. Well, now we're aging faster, but they're aging even faster than we're aging faster. So when things like this change, we find it fascinating because it changes the perspective, the outlook, how we're going to move forward for the entirety of the future. There's a need, by the way, which the Chinese and the Japanese don't have. Or they have the need, they just don't do it. They don't allow people to immigrate into their countries. Almost, well, very, very tiny amounts of immigration. And when they are, when people do immigrate into China or Japan, they are generally not treated very well. So people don't want to integrate into China or Japan. It's hard to remember this. It's hard to grab hold of it, but you learned it in sociology or whatever you study, social studies back in school. The United States is composed almost exclusively of immigrants and descendants of immigrants. And we either get the new immigration policy and control our immigration and allow reasonable immigration in the United States, we'll begin to shrink as an economy. It's that, it's that simple. It's hard to get our minds wrapped around that, but that's the fact. And it's easy to say, I don't, don't want anybody in here that doesn't look like me, who doesn't speak English as their first language, who doesn't act like me. Their culture is going to dilute our culture. This is a normal statement that people, I mean, and the Japanese held to that standard and still hold to that standard. And for them, it may be their, the right choice because as their economy is shrinking, they're having less, less power on the world stage, but their individual comfort, comfort level and their individual wealth is increasing. Their GDP may be getting smaller but their per capita GDP is getting bigger. Each person's individual share is getting more wealthy. Their economy is shrinking, but their individuals are more comfortable. So we could like go that route or we could say, let's keep growing as an economy. It's kind of like the federal debt when we talk about borrowing money to cover things, which by the way, the Repo that's something else Republicans, Democrats agree on. You can borrow lots of money if it's as long as it's your program. Right. But the point is that somebody's got to pay that money back eventually. So when you go to when you go to borrow money, if you're doing it wisely, you'll say, "Well, this actually pay us back more than we're borrowing." If it is, then it's good for your grandkids. If it isn't, it's not good for your grandkids. And the same thing is true with demographic growth or shrinkage. When the United States starts to decrease in size demographically, our grandkids will pay for it. They will be the ones who suffer. Right. And we can, yeah. we can use the demographic approach of what's happened in China. When you have a shrinking population, they had the one-child policy for a while. But if our, our fertility rate is 1.6, then we're not at one child. We're at 1.6 child. That, that's a problem. And that, that's less than two. That means we're not, we're not replacing our population year by year. In China, the typical young person is way more than average is a man. Uh, they outnumber the women by quite a significant amount. And they are the only grandson of each of their four grandparents and the only son of their parents. And the rules on the books are that they've got to provide for each of those six ancestors that are still alive. 
that's going to put a huge drain on their ability to expand their own comfort level, at least for quite a long time. Uh, and then if they stick to that, then their child would be responsible to take care of them. It's a drain. Uh, the traditional, very long-term trend throughout history is you have lots of kids, lots and lots of kids. Most of them don't make it to adulthood, but those that do outnumber you by a dramatic amount so that they can help take care of you in your old age. We're switching to a new paradigm now, a completely new way of approaching old age demographically, and we have to look around and plan for it. If we're borrowing a bunch of money to make our currently very large economy do well, or just spend it to do something consumer-related in the economy, and we're passing the bill down to multiple generations later when there's fewer of us, we hopefully should be making some moves to increase the ability for those future generations to do well, to help pay for the debt that we're bringing on. I think I've been on that soapbox a bit. My feet feel much cleaner. Cleaner. Yeah, they yeah, would. We're about out of time. Do you want to say some things to wrap up for the week? Well, there's another interesting little tidbit back in the, what, 10 years ago we were talking about Maybe more than 10 years ago, we were talking about the fact that e-commerce was gradually picking up when Amazon started and how it was going to be the future. Yeah. And we it's said 13. We said like we said really earth shaking things like more purchases would be taking place online at some point in the future than at actual stores. People laughed right. at us. We're up to 13.4% of all retail sales now being done online, which mm -hmm. is up from 10% just before the pandemic. Uh, and I think that's probably going to stick. Yeah. Um, there's a major change going on in the economy and it's, but it's slow and you have to keep look at it look at it over decades to see it. The bottom line it is, is that this recovery is continuing. It's doing very, very well. It's very, very healthy. The, uh, the expansion on the other side, we may already be through the recovery. We may actually have caught up with where we were before the pandemic started. Yeah. The size of the economy has recovered to that point. We were yeah. not back to where we were on the unemployment side. But it looks, it looks very much like there'll be a big, big expansion on the other side. And a big piece of that is the fact that business investment is up about 15% this year, which indicates that people are actually, the businesses are investing in what they need to make more stuff and provide more services. The big quandary, the big conundrum out there still remains, what, where are the workers? and Why aren't they working? And everybody has an opinion on that, but I don't know that we have any solid facts. Yeah. But yeah. meanwhile, back at the ranch, if you'd like to contact us off the air, we are an investment advisory firm catering to higher net worth people. And you can reach us locally at 254-947-1111. We have voicemail on the weekends, live people answering during the week, and it's raining like mad here. Yeah, it's raining here too. Uh, you can also reach us toll free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. That's still voicemail during the weekend, real live people during the week. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. You can sign up for our newsletter, read it there. You can uh, listen to radio programs going back quite a while out of ways. You can check out our podcasts. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.